Since 2007, the Paul Meredith team at CityCan Financial has prided themselves on providing a better mortgage experience than you'll get anywhere else. Paul and his team will guide you through the home financing process with professional quality advice, exceptional service, and mortgage rates tailored to meet your specific needs. Their goal is to treat all of their clients the same way they would if they were doing a mortgage for their own mothers. They want to provide you with a wow experience with your mortgage from industry-leading low rates to giving their clients the rock star treatment. The Paul Meredith team would love to have the opportunity to help you out on your next mortgage and show you why they have over 300 five-star reviews on Google. We at On The Way Home would like to acknowledge the original stewards of whose lands this podcast is recorded on. In York Region, we recognize we're on the traditional territories of the Wendat, the Haudenosaunee, and the Anishinaabe peoples, and that this is the treaty lands of the Mississaugas of the Credit. And in Vancouver, we acknowledge that we are on the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, the Musqueam, Squahomish, and Tsleil-Waututh, whose presence on these lands continue to this day. Welcome to On The Way Home. I am Michael Braithwaite from Blue Door. And as always on the podcast, I am joined by my wonderful co-host, Stefania. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing fine. How are you doing? <laughs> I don't know. That sounds like a bit of a strained fine. I, I was talking to someone today and it's such a loaded question these days to say, how are you doing? Mm -hmm. Because people, your, your automatic response is always to say fine. But, but, you know, are you really with everything happening in this world? How are you really doing? You know what? I am healthy. My immediate family is healthy. I think just this third wave is, I'm, I think as everyone, we're just over it. Um, I think we just all want to feel safe and, and, and sound again and not see the impacts that we're seeing on people who are experiencing homelessness and, and just our, and our general community. I think it's, um, there's just so much going on and I think we're all ready for it to, to be over. Absolutely. And I love what you mentioned there. Although the pandemic has been so tough on so many, uh, especially um, people who are in racialized communities, people experiencing homelessness, yeah. they've felt it even more so and continue to do so. And that's why when we have wonderful guests on this show, experts to talk about and to give us insight as to how people are, are feeling, uh, not only during the pandemic, but in general, uh, people are experiencing homelessness, what's happening uh, in that world. Like today's guest, we have the amazing Lorraine Lamb. And I'm going to do her, I, I loved, I told her, I, I ripped her uh, intro right off her website because it's incredible. I thought it was so well written because it starts too with a, a question. It says, what do justice and transformation look like in day-to-day -day life? Lorraine's life work is to find answers to that question and to work to help bring them to into reality. Motivated by her faith and her heart for people, Lorraine seeks opportunities to speak and write in order to advocate for so many voices that have been silenced while also learning to be more, uh, be a more effective ally. She's passionate about social justice, empowering women, faith interacting with power dynamics and worship in everyday life. Driven by her interests in social transformation and liberation, 
Lorraine spent her early adulthood uh, pursuing an education in music, sociology, and social work. Wow. And Lorraine spent the last decade hanging out, then working with Sanctuary, a community in the heart of Toronto that seeks to particularly value individuals who live in the margins of society. Uh, welcome to the show, Lorraine. Thank you for having me. I have to give credit to my partner for helping me write that. So kudos <laughs> to him. <laughs> Great job. Uh, Lorraine, you are an extraordinary person doing very important work. Can you take us on the journey that got to where you are today? I, I, when I read your, you know, that the education, the, the mix of music, sociology and social work, take us on that journey. Yeah. Um, oh my gosh. You know, it's funny because I, Sometimes life just kind of happens and uh, we don't sort of see the pieces come together until in hindsight. And I remember, um, I think as a kid, I was always, I was always really curious about life, especially um, people's lives who were different from mine. I think curiosity and wonder are our greatest teachers, um, especially when partnered with opportunities to listen and observe from people. And um, Growing up, I was always intrigued by why certain people ended up in spaces um, different from mine. You know, why was that person sleeping on a subway grate and why did I have a home to go to? You know, why were some of my friends involved in gangs and I wasn't? You know, I grew up in a solo parent family and so I'm very aware that things for me could have been very different. And so I think I was always really curious about why people ended up in different places and I looked for a lot of opportunities to just kind of get involved with communities that were different from mine. Um, going into music was, uh, I had, to, my mom <laughs> told me just do something out of high school. And I was like, oh my gosh, what am I supposed to do? And I really enjoyed music. Um, I loved culture. So I thought that ethnomusicology would be a way to go. Um, so pursuing music was really just to appease my mother and uh, find something fun. And while I was in school, um, in my first year at U of T, I showed up at a local community drop-in just by the ROM, actually. It's called, um, it's the Church of the Redeemer. They have a breakfast lunch program called the Common Table. And I showed up there with the best intentions to support them, to help out in the kitchen. And I remember going like the first week, and they welcomed me in and they said, hey, can you help us? make a turnip soup and I said I can do that and I started cutting up the beets and they were like you know what why don't why don't you just go hang out with people in the dining room instead so my good intentions to help in the kitchen unfortunately failed quite miserably but it did actually give me the opportunity then to just kind of hang out and get to know people which was really great and um it was really overwhelming at first because I was like this community is so different for me like what am I supposed to do like sit across the homeless person and be like, so how was your day going? Um, because I think I had assumptions. And I very quickly realized that a lot of my assumptions were not rooted in a lot of truth or they were rooted in stereotypes that were very unhelpful. Um, and actually a couple weeks after hanging out at that community, um, some of the guests who were there told me about a place called Sanctuary and they were like, why don't you come up with us um, and like check out the place, come have lunch with us there. Um, and so in hindsight, I probably should not have just wandered off with a group of strangers when they say, come and see this place that I go to, um, but I did. And that's how I found myself at Sanctuary. And um, I sat down with these people that I knew and just shared a meal with people. 
um, I remember the staff team were really hospitable and they were like, don't do anything. We just want you to come and hang out. And you know what? I realized actually how hard that was. I think um, in a lot of sort of volunteering experience and a lot of quote, getting involved experiences, so much about that is focused on me doing stuff because I think me doing things is what actually gives me the opportunity to keep people that keep people at arm's length. It's what keeps me comfortable. It centers my voice. Um, but really, I think a lot of the work that needs to happen, that needed to happen for me is to actually get really uncomfortable, is to actually look at how I've been a part of systems that have actually kept people oppressed. And so then throughout my time at Sanctuary, honestly, just hanging out for about five years before I joined the staff team, I got to know a lot of the people in the community and very quickly, like this community became friends, right? And, and things that I had learned about as social justice issues, for instance, weren't really about issues anymore, but they were about people that I loved. So homelessness isn't just about abstract numbers and concepts, but homelessness is about my buddy Richard, for instance, who froze to death two years ago on my street. You know, um, the residential school system is not just something I learned about in school, but I knew faces attached to people who survived the school systems, which, you know, led to a lot of trauma and why they're where they're at now. So yeah, that was quite a long journey. And so I've been at Sanctuary since 2006 and I've been working there since 2011 and it's been quite a ride. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's amazing, Lorraine. I think so much of what you just said resonated uh, with me as well. You know, when you're young and you're starting to see things as you start to learn about the world around you and you start asking these questions, like, why is my mm -hmm. life different than, yeah. than what I'm seeing? And, and I remember when I started getting into the sector, learning that modern mass homelessness as we grew up seeing didn't exist before the 80s at the level that it exists now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so just to circle back, because you've mentioned it in your, mm -hmm. in your first to answer here is uh is, is sanctuary so i'm i'm from vancouver bc so i don't know a lot about sanctuary other than what i've read mm -hmm. uh preparing to to have you as a guest today so can you tell us a little bit about it you know what is its mission um and and who does it serve yeah so sanctuary is a little community um right at the heart of toronto like young and bluer um and honestly that's basically who we are we are a community first and foremost um, really wanting to be a space where people whose voices are often are ignored are centered. Um, for us, it's really moved by our faith and our understanding of what um, what love looks like in the world, what our faith in the Creator is about. Um, and so, we don't describe ourselves as a social service agency because I think in that language, there's often a focus on people with power versus people without. And I think in our community, we work really hard to try to figure out, well, how can we actually create community where we can minimize as much of the power dynamics as possible? So for instance, I always use our kitchen as an example. The people who are working in our kitchen and um, cooking meals for the community are the same people who actually might be sleeping in the alley behind your building um, because this is their community. So they're the ones showing up to cook food for, for their guests. And as outsiders, you know, let's say you wanted to come and hang out and, and volunteer. What I would probably say to you is great, come and do absolutely nothing. Um, be welcomed in by this community that often gets ignored and gets shafted. And actually we'll see some of these power dynamics um, just kind of go turn upside down 
And I think that's actually the beginnings of how things can really change in our larger world. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think there's nothing better to do than be in community. Mm-hmm. It's the best way to learn about, you know, the issues, like you mentioned, the residential school system. Uh, there's one thing to learn about it. And it's one thing to know and be friends with folks who've been impacted by it. Um, mm-hmm. So so my next uh, that I'd like to talk to you about in regards to sanctuaries, how have things changed uh, during the pandemic um, and for for sanctuary and for the folks that that you work with? Yeah, the pandemic, um, I feel like we've been in the pandemic for so much longer than we have been, (laughs) but I guess it was, it's only been a year. It's been the longest year ever. Um, You know, it's interesting because I think we hear a lot of language from the government that, okay, stay home. We're all in this together. But very quickly when the pandemic unfolded, I realized we're not really all in this together. Um, at all like we are in this together unless you're poor unless you're homeless unless you're black unless you're indigenous Um, and so we're not really in this together and I think we really see the effects of that play out in this community Um, COVID came at a time when the housing crisis was in a state of emergency when the poisoned drug supply was in the state of emergency so now we have this holy trio of pandemics um, just slamming and wreaking havoc on a community that's already been struggling Um, The pandemic exacerbated, I would say the unholy trio actually, Um, the pandemic exacerbated a lot of gaps that were already um, in existence. It's almost like this veil was kind of torn down and you could actually see all the gaps in our systems. You know, I mean, we heard at the start, like stay home, stay safe. Well, where does one go if you have no home, right? Um, The shelters were crowded and, the wait list for subsidized housing right now is 10 to 12 years for a bachelor unit and even longer if you require accessibility, right? And so I think a lot of the things that maybe, I know I took for granted in terms of access, um, that's not really a basic need, a basic access for a lot of people. And it became luxury during the pandemic. You know, um, for the last year, we haven't had access to public bathrooms overnight. So, you know, I was on outreach a couple weeks ago and offered someone coffee at seven in the evening. And he said, no, I don't drink anything after seven because I might need to go to the washroom and there's nowhere for me to go, you know? And so basic things like that, we have lost access to during the pandemic. People often relied on 24 hour coffee shops to just like kind of sit and warm up. Those are all closed. Um, People relied on going to Union Station at one point during the pandemic because it was very well ventilated. People could sit, people could have access to washrooms, charge their mobility devices. But then in February, Union Station took all of the seating away. Um, So even those options were taken away. So I think the reality is the pandemic has highlighted where um, things that many of us get to take for granted are actually not really accessible to a lot of the people in our community. Construct, a social enterprise by Blue Door, provides high-quality residential and commercial construction and property services in the greater Toronto area. More than a business with a heart, Construct is a real solution to preventing and ending homelessness. Through its eight-week paid skills trades training program, complete with wraparound supports and on-the-job work experience, Construct lifts people out of poverty and into opportunity. To hire Construct for your next project, or learn more about Construct's employment program, visit constructgta.ca.
www.ca. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcasts wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. Absolutely. And I think one of the other things we've noticed during the pandemic for people experiencing homelessness is that although um, encampments have been around uh, for a long time, unfortunately, um, they've they've grown, they've gotten bigger, more people are um, in encampments. And I think just for the the general listener Mm -hmm. to understand uh, why are there encampments and why, you know, you built a lot of relationships with people in encampments. Mm -hmm. Why do people go to encampments? Why are they there? Yeah, Ooh, that is a that is a big question. So we can just chat about it for about ten days. <laughs> um, encampments. Yeah, I really appreciate that you mentioned that encampments were a reality even before the pandemic. I think there was definitely this misunderstanding that it was new during this season, but it's not. Um, I think you know to address the reality of encampments, we need to talk about the reality of housing, right? Um, you know, it's interesting because when COVID happened, the Canadian government. Um, created CERB and said that individuals could have $2,000 a month as support if they needed. However, social assistance rates are significantly lower than that. So for instance, somebody on welfare gets $343 a month for basic needs. $343. That's, that's wild, right? Like if you were to buy a monthly transportation pass, that's like half of your check. And so um, when you're in social assistance, they also give you like a rent top up if you have a landlord who's willing to sign something to say, I'll, I'll rent you my place. And the rent top up on welfare, they'll give you a maximum of about $390. So if you combine both portions of that check together, your total check is about $750. And like, I don't know if anyone's tried to look for a place for $750 a month recently, but that's basically impossible. I can't even find a parking spot for $750 a month downtown. You can no so, longer rent a room for $750 yeah, it's, in it's, a house. Yeah. It's absolutely nuts. And so that's that's the context for housing, right? And so we have a lot of people, thousands of people who are um, needing gear to income rent. So it's subsidized. And I mentioned earlier that the wait times for that right now is audacious. It's like 10 to 12 years for a bachelor, possibly more for a one bedroom, even longer if you're in a wheelchair. So literally, there are people who are waiting outside, dying, waiting for housing. Some people die before they even see their own place, right? And so that's the reality that we're working with. And so a lot of people um, for a long time have been camping out, um, probably more hidden. So in the valley, in the ravines, um, and specifically at Sanctuary, even before the pandemic, we actually had seven tents on our property, um, seven individuals camping out. And we got a lot of complaints from our neighbors and the city forced us to take the tents down in January before the pandemic. And we said to the city, you know, if we were to do this, um, people will die. And the city said, well, you know what, we're gonna give you, give these seven individuals rent subsidies. Hopefully they'll find housing, you have to take the tents down. So we took the tents down in January and uh, several weeks later, two out of the seven people died. So encampments are honestly the safest option for people right now. We know that shelters are crowded. Um, There are outbreaks in many, many shelters. 
Um, and even if you were to try to get into a shelter without COVID, they were always full. So it honestly was like the last option for people. And that's why people ended up in encampments. And, and I think what we're seeing now is a very, very visible symptom of a deeper gaping wound. Um, we need housing and people are out here because there is no housing. And so that's some of the context in terms of why a lot of people are in encampments um, sort of throughout the whole city. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the answers, I know that uh, the city has, has come down and said, hey, these are not safe. And there have been incidents where um, there's been fires uh, that, that have broken out and people have, have died or gotten hurt. Uh, and they're worried about safety as well. And now there's mm -hmm. been hundreds of hotel programs opened up over the course of the pandemic, which is wonderful. We seem we can we can move pretty quick. Um, but those aren't for everyone. Some people will say, hey, I don't want to leave my space uh, in this encampment. Can you help wrap our heads a little bit around that? Why, you know, what, if that isn't the answer, if it's just part of the answer, what are some other things we need to consider when we're supporting people uh, to, uh, that are living in encampments or, or that want to leave? Yeah, so the hotel shelters are, are one option for some people. The reality is that a lot of these hotels are quite far from downtown and a lot of people are homeless often, or at least a lot of visible homelessness happens downtown because that's a lot of where the concentration of supports are, social supports, food supports, healthcare. And so to displace people so far away, you actually put people into real states of panic of like, I, I don't know where I am. You know, at the start of the pandemic, I heard a story of a guy who was in Brampton who got um, placed out in Brampton and uh, was walking along Queen Street in Brampton, but thought that it was Queen Street in Toronto. So he thought that he could just walk a little bit and eventually get to the Eaton Center. And he walked and he walked and he walked and realized this is not where I need to be, right? So we can't be displacing people like that. I know somebody in the community who has never left like a five kilometer radius from the Eaton Center. And that's where he's been since, you know, he was a teenager. And so, some of these far away hotel shelters are just not actually viable for people. Um, and I think a lot of the hotel shelters are actually run like shelters as well. So there are wellness checks throughout the evening. So there's staff that will knock on your room and come into the room several times a day to just check on you. There are rules, there are curfews, you're li limited to a certain amount of belongings that you can bring in with you. Um, some places had rules like you couldn't eat or drink in your room at one point. And so, you know, these rules just don't work for a lot of people, especially people who have a lived experience of a lot of compounding trauma. Some of this stuff actually takes people back to places where they were um, perhaps when they were in jail or in their youth, that's actually much more traumatizing. So whereas these options work for some, there's a large number of people for them who don't, and these don't work for us. So they're outside until they, they can get their own place. So I think one of the things that we really need to address is actually the fact that there's no housing anywhere, right? You know, even if your listener does not care about what happens to homeless people, even if they don't care whether they live or die, not providing housing and not having housing is actually financially irresponsible. So for instance, one of these hotel shelters per person can cost up to $6,000 a month. $6,000 is a lot of money that could go towards rent subsidies or like, you know, anything. So why are we spending money on this? You know, um, the cost of people perpetually being in hospitals that's costly on the healthcare system. So it's actually financially irresponsible to not be caring for our vulnerable communities. Um, so I think one of the things that really needs to happen is we need to look at the housing reality in the city 
you know, we see luxury condos being built really quickly. Why is there no policies to ensure that actually these places are affordable, that for every luxury condo that goes up, we should ensure that there is actually affordable housing being built, right? Why is the government not expropriating land to actually build um, housing for people? Um, I think that one of the um, struggles I have as well is that the experts are the people who are outside and they're not being listened to, right? The experts in this are not sitting with you today in a Zoom call, in a podcast call, but they're out there surviving. And I think we really need to actually make space at the table to hear from them. And specifically in Toronto regarding encampments, a lot of us have been pushing for the city to actually talk to the people in the encampments. But counselors have not set foot in an encampment to talk to anybody. It's like their voices don't matter. And I think we're starting to see actually that um, policymakers are more concerned about optics rather than actually addressing root solutions. And I think that's where we come in, right? Like um, we know that policies hurt people, um, inaction hurts people and policies are created by politicians and we are the people that vote in the politicians. So politicians will respond in accordance to their constituents and what they're asking for. And currently we have a government who actually, we don't have a moratorium on eviction. So we're actually seeing a lot of people lose their jobs or getting evicted from their places. And we're in, in Toronto, we're seeing 600 new people enter a shelter system every month, 600. So we have a government that's not putting a moratorium to evictions. They're not giving paid sick days. There's no, we haven't had a government that has put in a housing strategy in over a decade. And so I think for us, we have a responsibility to use our voices better um, to actually put in people who will enact policies. We need to vote differently. We need to actually care about people over profit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think so much of what you said, um, again, really resonates. And I think it's something that we're seeing. I know, you know, um, at the very, very beginning of the pandemic, we uh, saw these hotels being uh, sort of commandeered by governments. And, and at the time, that was a really great effort to allow space for people to isolate who couldn't, especially in shelter where people are on top of each other or outside and they're really wary. Um, so I think that it's really, really important that our, our leaders are listening to the folks who are directly impacted uh, mm -hmm. and learning best and, and kind of creating solutions with them at the table, either yeah. leading it with their input, like co-creating the solutions. I think absolutely like nail on the head on that. Mm -hmm. um, so, so as we talk about this and as we're seeing folks uh, and encampments growing, um, and we know that when encampments get shut down, more often than not, folks either go back into sort of a hidden homelessness situation where they're maybe camping in more um, isolated areas. Here in BC, we see that a lot because we have mm. so much bush. Even in Vancouver, there's a mm -hmm. lot of parks, a lot of forest. Um, and so we see, we see a lot of that. Um, and then we tend to see more protest style encampments where mm -hmm. they're an encampment, people are finding community yeah. um, and, and, and staying together for safety in numbers, but also to sort mm -hmm. of say, hey, we're here, we want yeah. help, yeah. Um, we need solutions, right? So um, I'm wondering, you know, in your opinion and your experience and what you've seen as someone working with these encampments, what are, what are some of the ways that people who don't know what to do, um, but wanna do something, um, how, how can they best support these solutions or, or support folks who, who are living out in a, in a tent in their, in their community? Yeah, so there's definitely, there's definitely sort of 
I think about that in a twofold way, right? So um, I think there's the immediate thing. So um, I think it's really important to support people who are doing the work. So look for your local, you know, groups of people, whether they're like volunteers or community leader organizations that are actually directly supporting these individuals and ask, how, how can I help, right? I think what was really interesting is that um, sometimes people think that if I bring food, that's going to be the most helpful thing. And it actually is not because groups often want to show up with meals, usually on weekends when it's convenient for volunteers. Again, I think I spoke about this earlier. Oftentimes when we want to do stuff, we center our own voices without actually listening to people who are we're trying to support. And so what I was seeing was a lot of people were bringing food to groups to the big encampments on weekends. And I had somebody in a big encampment ask me, can you tell them to go away? <laughs> um, and they didn't mean it like, you know, in a whore, like in a mean way, but they were just like, it's too much. You know, um, we can't eat all this food. We have no refrigerator to store the food. We have no way to warm up the food later. And then all of this uneaten food just actually attracts rats and pigeons. And then we get complaints about garbage. And then the city's heat is on us. So we actually don't want more food please stop giving us food. We don't need it. Um, again, I think it came from a good, in, good place. I think people who are volunteers have the best intentions, but we often, we often stop at our intentions. We don't do the hard work of actually listening and engaging with people. Why don't we just actually ask what people need? And the best way to do that is, well, if you're not comfortable going to the encampments directly, then maybe talk to local, like, local people who are doing the work and ask them, like, what is it that I can support you with? I mean, people would be happy to let you know. Um, so I think that's one thing that I think we can, we can definitely all do better at is actually just to stop and listen. So look for communities around you that are doing the work and support them. Support the people who are doing the work. Like um, there's a nice lady in our community who lives about an hour away and she often just like bakes my staff team like fresh gingerbread cookies and muffins just to like kind of keep us going, which is really nice. And I know, you know, she's not directly feeding people in encampments, but she is supporting us doing the work. There are some people who I know at Sanctuary who um, regularly give uh, financially to help us continue to purchase items. There are some people who organize donation drives based on things that we need. So we had a local group do a big drive just for men's jeans, because that's what we actually needed, not more hot meals, right? So definitely start there. Um, but I think the other piece in terms of getting involved really has to do with, again, like addressing root causes. Um, instead of just donating sleeping bags and donating clothes, can we actually ask questions about why people need your sleeping bags? Can we actually ask questions about how we can build solutions so that we don't need to ask for sleeping bags anymore? You know, my dream is to be in a position where I'm actually out of work. I don't want to have to do this work. I don't want there to be homelessness. I don't want there to be poverty. And I, I think that we can all get involved in doing that work because I actually think it's possible to actually make changes. Um, but I think we need to actually start asking the right questions. And, you know, like maybe instead of asking, what can I do? Maybe we can look into sort of like, what's, what am I doing that's contributing to the problem? Um, and how can we make a reality where my donations are not needed anymore? Um, and I think some of that will actually change the way we approach, you know, helping people. Mm -hmm. 
Well, speaking of um, things that folks can do, how can folks learn more about Sanctuary um, and, and the work that you guys are doing? Uh, where can they go? What's like a good website to check out? Yeah, how can, how can folks learn more about Sanctuary? Yeah, so uh, they can check out Sanctuary on our website at sanctuarytoronto.ca. We are also on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, um, also under Sanctuary Toronto. So um, you can connect with us there. Well, Lorraine, thank you so much for educating us, for bringing a, a new level of awareness. Uh, I found this this podcast was incredible. I, I love so much of what you were saying, and it, it resonates so much, uh, most likely for uh, Steph as well, not to put words in her mouth, but just that whole idea of listening to people, taking those good intentions and, and doing something else with them. Uh, it's just brilliant. Thank you for the work that that you are doing. I hope too that you're out of a job, not that I want you to be unemployed, but we do <laughs> know that this is a very solvable issue and have mm -hmm. hopes for the future that things can change. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for inviting me here. Well, Michael, she was such a great guest to have. Um, and yeah, I think I said resonated with me a few times, didn't I? <laughs> but I, I really meant it. I think um, so much of, of what she was saying was was dead on, particularly, you know, at the CAH, um, whenever we have meetings together, because we're all scattered across the country working from home. Um, it's, it's so... Uh, big for us to work ourselves out of jobs because the end game is if we achieve what's in our name ending homelessness in Canada you know um, then we will just look for the next challenge facing you know all of us and, and work on that I think that's that's the goal for all of us or should be yeah listen there's enough challenges to go around right we, we can mm -hmm. uh, take on the next one but this is a big one very sol solvable I've often said hey if I told you we had the the vaccine for COVID, but chose not to use it right now because it wasn't at the top of the mm -hmm. agenda, people would lose their minds because people are dying. Well, hey, people are dying on the streets. People yeah. are dying of overdoses. This is a mm -hmm. crisis. We know the solutions. Um, Lorraine outlined a lot of them. Let's act now and move forward. So uh, a very motivating guest and, and so, so happy to have her on and so happy for the work that she does. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. So I'm just, yeah, excited. And uh, I guess I'll see you next week. I'll see you then. Hi, I'm Joel McLeod, co-host of the 905er podcast. The 905 is one of the most diverse and densely populated regions of Canada. Four and a half million of us live, work, and play in the area surrounding Toronto. That's more people in the 905 than actually live in Toronto. Each election, the 905 decides who forms our government at both the provincial and federal levels. So why isn't more attention being focused on us here in the 905? We're looking to change that. My co-hosts, Roland Tanner and I, tell the stories that define what we are calling the most important region in Canada. Each week, we bring to your attention news, culture, and issues that make up what it means to be a 905er. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to your podcasts. Or you can visit us at 905er.ca to subscribe. Produced by Cryer Media and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.